0: Hey guys, this is Cabane the Christian, and I'm very happy to tell you that we have Lydia McGrew uh, back again today. We did one interview with her uh, about a month and a half ago, I think, on the resurrection of Jesus and her approach to making the argument for the resurrection, which isn't the same as the minimal facts approach. Um, that can be watched on, uh, on its own. You don't need to watch that to... Uh, watch this, but I really do recommend that you check both of these videos out in whatever order. Today, we're going to be talking about her new book on the Gospel of John, The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as Historical Reportage, which is just an excellent book. And it makes the case for the historicity of John in a way that's both original, but also rooted in the more uh, uh, traditional arguments Uh, while still adding new substance to them. Um, So we'll start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into it. Uh, Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, trampling down all carnal desires. May enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. Thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, so Christ our God, and thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who's everlasting, and not a holy good and life creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Lydia, welcome back. Good
1: to be here, Sarah. Uh,
0: so tell me, how, how did you uh, get in specifically to the discussion on the Gospel of John? You've been involved in discussion about the history of the Gospels to some degree. Um, you've had engagement, both critical and complementary, with other. Um, conservative scholars or scholars should be called conservative. Uh, what got you into John in particular?
1: Well, in some ways, my interest in John was the catalyst <clears throat> for the earlier book, The Mirror of the Mask as well but i saw from the beginning that because john came in for so much more questioning i was going to need to do a whole book on john so um especially when uh i it came to light that back in 2012 craig evans had done a um series two debates with Bart Ehrman, in which he was saying a lot of really striking things about John and John's lesser historicity than the synoptics and so forth. And that kind of came out again in 2017. I mean, these, these debates have been up on Bart Ehrman's channel, I think, all the way along. But in 2017, the uh, uh, anti-Christian Yaya Snow actually published a little clip from that. And it was not taken out of context. The people who say it was taken out of context are just wrong. I've literally watched both debates from the beginning to end. If anything, there was way more. um, Where, you know, Dr. Evans is out there agreeing with Bart Ehrman about the, you know, real deep questions about the historicity of John. So this was very shocking. And um, yet, even when I started getting into uh, all this stuff about literary devices in the Gospels that led me to write uh, The Mirror of the Mask, I realized that John was going to be treated as even less historical. And also there's such a huge literature on the authorship and like everybody was going to want me to treat the authorship. So I knew I was going to need a second book. So um, right from the time that I was writing The Mirror of the Mask, I asked my publisher um, if he would be willing to give me a contract for two books. So that's why even in the mirror of the mask you will see reference forward references like I'll be dealing with this more in the eye of the beholder and so forth so um in a sense it kind of all came together my concern about particularly evangelical scholars who are um I would call it throwing the gospel of John under the bus I realized they would dislike that term but that that is what I would call it so I I knew I was going to want to get into that in a lot of detail
0: yeah, I, I remember being very surprised that Craig Evans took that perspective. He was interviewed by Lee Strobel in one of his books. I just had the kind of vague impression that he roughly would agree with Craig Blomberg. Um, but it, it was a very sharp um, statement critiquing history of the Gospel of John. And also just the, the factuality of certain of his assertions, uh, like the way that wisdom spoke is just you know very, very weak. Um, so... Uh, could you tell us some, uh, uh, some of the prevailing myths about John's gospel that have influenced conservative evangelical scholarship and why they're important?
1: Yeah. Well, one of them is that there's something very, very theological about John and that this is um, in tension with his being literally historical. So um, there's this notion that because John is deep, John is theological that this is going to make him kind of wobbly on the historical side or or even not care as much about it. So that I think is a myth. Um, another myth is that John is an ancient guy and that being an ancient man caused him to not take literal historicity to be as important. So Richard Burridge is a, um, he's not an evangelical, but he's been very influential on evangelicals. He's like a cross disciplinary uh, classicist and New Testament scholar. Um, and he literally says, one of my students asked me, why does John keep fabricating um, these things about Jesus when he says so much about truth? Now, this is a very good question that the student was asking. And um <clears throat> Birch said that he responded to the student that the negative connotation of fabrication is modern. Okay, and so I think that's a myth too. <clears throat> I think that uh, we find it in the early church fathers, Papias and um, these guys that the, and, and Ignatius and all of these guys that the negative connotation of truth is a negative connotation. I mean, excuse me, the negative connotation of, of not telling the truth is a negative connotation for them as it is for us. Um, And so that's another myth that we're somehow imposing a modern standard by uh, saying that John would have been unlikely to have fabricated. Um, Another myth is that it is often the case that in John, you cannot tell whether Jesus or the uh, narrator is speaking. So it's interesting, you'll see a scholar like within the same book will say, it is sometimes the case. And then later in the same book, he'll say it's often the case. You know, um, it is like it grows. It, it really is like a game of telephone, you know, that it, it grows in the telling. You know, this fish was this long, the fish was this long, the fish was this long, you know. Um, there is literally only one place. In the entire Gospel of John, where it's hard to tell whether the narrator or Jesus is speaking, that's in John 3. There is one other place also in John 3 where it's a little difficult to tell. I don't think it's that difficult, but whether the narrator or John the Baptist is speaking, but that's John the Baptist, and that's it. I mean, elsewhere it's very clear whether he's portraying it's Jesus or whether it's the narrator. In fact, sometimes the narrator goes out of his way to pause, you know, sort of hit pause on Jesus and give his own explanation. So um, that's that's a third myth. So those will, those will do to, for starters. There's quite a few.
0: Yeah, I I wanted to kind of get at um, the question of standards in antiquity and such mm. um, because. The claim, you, you hear it in various contexts, in various forms, that this is an enlightenment standard of truth, like you're the real enlightenment guy and I'm the heir to tradition. Um, but but it, it's so clearly, at least if articulated in that way, false, because we know that um, authorship, was a central criterion in what books were received as canonical. I mean, it's not as if the fathers you know, didn't care whether second Peter was written by Peter mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, so, and the claim that it was just a genre, it, it seemed, I, I don't know where it comes from. Um, but I remember when I was uh, getting into my like teenage apologetics phase, I was all into the idea that the gospels are ancient biography. Um, and you mentioned Richard Burridge, and uh, I later became skeptical of that. And, and could he speak to what this is all about? And should Christians be using this argument? Is it true? And yeah. is it really valuable?
1: That's, that's a really good and it's an important question. I think that people like your younger self um, hear the phrase, their ancient biographies or even their ancient Greco-Roman biographies as a support for historicity. Okay, so I like to talk here in terms of a floor and a ceiling to historicity. All right, so a person who thinks calling the ancient Greco-Roman biographies is helpful to the conservative case, thinks of it as providing a floor, like they are no less historical than this. They're at least this historical. So they're not just you know, myths or legends and the floor would get lower and lower and lower as we go into these other genres, right, Uh, or poetry or whatever. So we've got this floor there, no, they're ancient Greco-Roman biography, cool, then they're no uh, no less historical than this, they're at least somewhat historical. But the problem is, and, and this is unbeknownst to people like your younger self and even many scholars, I think, who are saying, yeah, 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 there's a consensus that these are ancient Greco-Roman bioi. Uh, they don't realize that then others are going to go out and say it's a, there's a ceiling. It's providing a ceiling for historicity so that they are no more historical, or at least they're likely, maybe it's a probabilistic argument, they're likely to be no more historical than this. They're likely at least to make up some things. They're likely at least to uh, invent some things or bend the truth or tweak the truth to some extent, because that was part and parcel of the genre. And those, the, this, these changes were what was allowed in the genre. Now I spend a lot of time here, we're kind of going back to the mirror or the mask, Arguing that um, that's not even true of you know Greco-Roman bio that they automatically <clears throat> were likely to make something up because they're like hey I'm in this genre <clears throat> and these changes are allowed in this genre that's that's not even true but also <clears throat> um, I do think that we've got a false consensus sometimes being put forward where a scholar like Dr. Michael Lacona will say, look at all these scholars, including evangelicals, who agree that the Gospels are Greco-Roman bio, so Lydia's just out to lunch. And it's like, how many of those who agree with it are just agreeing with it as a name or a label, but are not therefore saying that It was part and parcel of it to have this feeling of historicity where you would be very likely at least to change some things and make some things up. I think there are are a lot. I mean, if you go all the way back to the 1980s, there was an exchange between Douglas Moo and uh, Robert Gundry concerning Matthew, where Robert Gundry was saying that Matthew was Midrash. And so Matthew was making up a bunch of the infancy narrative sections. I mean, really making them up, like the flight to Egypt and everything. You know, he said was all made up. And at a certain point in the, it's very interesting. It's for free online. You can find it with the uh, JETS, the Journal of the ETS. Uh, Moo said, "Well, you know, there's an alternative here, as a genre, which is Greco-Roman biographies." Now, it was absolutely clear that when Moo was bringing it up, Moo wasn't bringing it up to support. Fact changing literary devices. He was bringing it up to support historicity. So if someone were to point to Moo and say, see, Moo thinks they're Greco Roman biography, that wouldn't mean Moo was endorsing historical change. It would mean just the opposite. So I think we need to be really careful about how we're using this genre. And then, other, one other brief thing, because I don't want to get too much into the mirror of the mask, is that the minute I heard Greco Roman biographies, I said, man, that's awfully specific. And I can remember a conversation sitting across the table from my husband, Tim, and saying, do we really have evidence that they're anything that specific? I mean, they're biographies. Obviously, they're biographies. And obviously, they're ancient. So in that sense, they're ancient biographies, right? It's just like trivial. Um, but it, that they're like in this specific genre with influence and so forth from this genre. And he said, well, you know, Birch is over there on the shelf. Go ahead and have a look. So I go and I pull Birch off the shelf. And I start looking for evidence of actual influence of um, from this specific genre, some kind of a more meaningful because again literature is my field. When you claim a specific genre and it's going to be meaningful, it's not just supposed to be well, they kind of vaguely resemble one another. it's supposed to be putting that document in a literary tradition where that author actually knows that he's in that literary tradition and he's actually trying to, uh, you know, follow the norms of that literary tradition. And Burridge's arguments were terribly weak for that. And I discussed that in the Mirror of the Mask. So um, I don't think anybody really at this point should be using a phrase so specific as ancient Greco-Roman biography. And at this point, I would even be careful about using the phrase ancient biography to mean anything more than a sort of a tautology. They're ancient and they're stories of Jesus' life, so they're ancient biographies, but not as a kind of a technical term.
0: You know, the closest analogy to the style of of the gospels and particularly John to me, really strikes me as the extended narratives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Um, that, that's what stands out to me the most. Of course, that's somewhat subjective. But at least there, we know that um, John is operating in the tradition of the scriptures of Israel. only expects his readers to have some acquaintance with those scriptures. And it's right there in the scriptures. So you don't have to make inferences or guesses about their acquaintance with Greco-Roman True. biography. True.
1: And also, I would say it's obvious on the face that those narratives are supposed to be taken to be historical. I mean, that doesn't mean they're. we know that they're without error or something, but that they were taken on their face to be historical.
0: So what about this idea that um, ancient people, quote unquote, uh, didn't care about historical truth, that truth for them meant anything other than it needed to be historical? Where does this come from, and why is it wrong?
1: Well, I think it's a. I think it's actually a form of projection, and it, it's that the the modern scholar thinks he's getting back to the true ancient view, but he's actually making the ancient guy over in the image of the. The modern scholar who thinks it's more cool, you know, to, to do something other than literal truth that literal truth is boring or something. Um, so I have a whole chapter, again, we're kind of doing T mom here the mirror of the mask, called let ancient people speak for themselves. And it's just Full of quotes, and, and there's a bunch of them. I mean, you know, everything from Aristotle's statement of the correspondence theory of truth and Plato, and, you know, we go forward and up into the, the church fathers and, you know, so forth. Um, Origins, an outlier here, Origins, a favorite of these, uh, I would call them, you know, modern scholars. Uh, but he's actually he's actually the outlier. He's the unusual guy who occasionally does say these semi-postmodern things like, "Hey, you know, we can't reconcile them, but that's okay because it's spiritual and and that kind of thing." Very unusual. Um, but one of my favorites, and I'll just give it real quickly here, is Julius Africanus, and he's. Older than Origin, you know, he's like in the late second century, and he's talking about the genealogies in the Synoptics. And the, that they were already sort of wrestling with the notion that they were contradictory. And I think he takes the Leverett marriage theory as the solution there. But anyway, he had apparently encountered somewhere the idea of what you might call a a fact-changing literary device, that the authors had partially invented those genealogies to show that Jesus was both a prophet, priest, and king, I believe was it you know, to make us make a spiritual point. And Africanus just gets on this rant. And he says that this, this would be like what the apostle Paul says, when Paul says we would be found false witnesses against God. And he says, no glory can possibly uh, be given to God by this uh, but rather judgment falls upon the one who suggests it because he is suggesting something about you know God that isn't true and I mean he, he, it's a wonderful wonderful rant and I would say Africanus is more in line with Papias. Papius says I was not interested in the teachings of other men but rather in the the living in abiding voice that was a testimony to the words proceeding from the truth itself by by which of course he means Jesus. So there's Papias way back at the dawn of the second century very very concerned about getting as close as he can to the actual voice of Jesus. So I, I think we find that that's actually um, the way that those ancient people thought. So I, I have a lot more I could say about that but that just gives a partial answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, Robert Lewis Wilkin, you know, mentions in Christians as the Romans saw them that, you know, biblical historicity actually was something of a flashpoint between the debates uh, between the early Christian apologists and and, um, the uh, uh, defenders of the classical Greco-Roman tradition. Um, So one thing I was really interested in, in the book, um, was the significance that many or some of these evangelical and then non-evangelical critics mm-hmm. of joining historicity, place on the idea of discourses. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. there's this idea that Dr. Evans mentions it, that there are seven I am discourses. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that and and what's the deal with that? Is it true? So there's,
1: is- yeah, there's a couple things. For one thing, um, one of the things Dr. Evans said in those two night, nightly back-to-back debates with Bart Ehrman is that when Jesus says, I am, and then with a predicate, so like I am the true vine, I am the light of the word, world, um, he sounds like Lady Wisdom. And so he was advocating a micro genre that you might call of wisdom literature, that suddenly Jesus looks like an allegorical figure when he uses this I am language. Um, Now, it was not, I mean, it's not true. Jesus doesn't sound like lady wisdom at all. For one thing, uh, I am followed by a a predicate is not particularly characteristic even in the uh, non-canonical wisdom literature. I have a confirmation of that from the Old Testament scholar, Jack Collins. Um, But for another thing, I mean, these are very historically placed. So for example, probably the most uh, perfect example of an I am discourse as Dr. Evans defined it would be the bread of life discourse in John 6. So it's um, all about one theme, it gets kicked off by an I am saying with a predicate, Uh, it's highly theological, etc. And it's said to be in the uh, synagogue at Capernaum Um, well, Lady Wisdom's utterances are, you know, by the crossroads or something, you know, is it's not a, a specific historical location. And the people complain, they say, don't we know this man's Um, parents, and how can he say, I came down from heaven, you know, he's the son of Mary and Joseph, he didn't come down from heaven, well, that never happens to Lady Wisdom either, so Jesus doesn't look like Lady Wisdom at all, Um, the other thing is, and I kind of go through it, there are not seven I am discourses, they don't follow this, there are quite a few I am sayings with predicates, but for example, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, then it, like, immediately, they immediately start arguing about something different, so he, he doesn't. They have a dialogue, and it doesn't, uh, you know, develop that "I am the light of the world" saying at all. Um, so there's that. Um, so he doesn't look like a lady wisdom. There aren't seven "I am" discourses. And then just to kind of express, and we can talk more about this, what these scholars I think are getting at is the idea that nobody could have actually remembered a discourse that is connected, repetitive, and so forth, as some of the discourses in John, whether we call them I am, you know, whether they're I am discourses or not, um, and sometimes they're dialogues. That's the other thing. There's this special, just for John, definition of the word discourse that it includes dialogues. And and, and like, we don't do that in the synoptic. So it's, it's kind of ridiculous, kind of roping stuff in, but that nobody could have remembered all of that. And so therefore John has to be partially at least making it up. So I think that's part of the part of what kind of lies behind it, even if it's not brought out explicitly. And that's an interesting thing that we can we can talk about more, but I think that's part of what they're getting at.
0: Um- Now, there's a common theme that starts to emerge, I think, in these discussions, which is, and you mentioned this in the book, I think you may have a whole chapter on it, but, you know, you have the chapter called Terms as Tools. Um, Mm -hmm. You have this word discourse, you have this word biography, and Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of weight seems to be placed on the meaning that is built into these specific terms. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about that and why it's important?
1: I think that as an analytic philosopher, I'm especially sensitive to ambiguity. Um, And I I think that part of my my gift that I can bring to this cross disciplinary work between philosophy and New Testament and probability and all these things is disambiguating terms. and there's also something, now I'm going to say something a little more controversial, but called the Mont and Bailey fallacy. Um, and in the Mont and Bailey, you go out there and you say something that sounds really exciting. And then the minute it gets challenged, you kind of back up and say something that sounds a lot more boring. It's more defensible, but it's, um, but it's not as exciting as what you were originally saying. So if you say, you know, the Gospels are Greco-Roman Biography and and, every, and everybody's like, wow, cool, you know, and this is really enlightening. Um, and they have these, you know, literary devices that are part and parcel of their genre, blah blah blah. And then someone challenges it. You back up and you say, well, don't you think they would use the conventions of their time rather than later conventions? And it's like, yeah, I'm just not agreeing that these were the conventions. Of their time that they were using, I'm not claiming they were using, you know, later conventions. So you back up to something that's so obvious that nobody could possibly reasonably deny it. Um, and so similarly with the word like paraphrase, this is one that I really emphasize in in terms and tools. So someone will claim, you know, John is constructing these discourses by taking something. The, the historical Jesus taught maybe in a completely different context, even you know maybe maybe something like uh, teaching his deity in uh, in the synoptics, which are in you know different locations and so forth in these very implicit ways, and then he's el- elaborating upon that to, to construct a discourse, and then if someone challenges that and says, "Wow, you know that uh, that doesn't seem probable or plausible or something," then the the person will say. Well, all I'm saying is that John doesn't record Jesus' words absolutely verbatim. Uh, No, that's not all you're saying. That's not all you were originally saying. And it's interesting that this Martin Bailey actually has a a, a similarity to straw manning because when you retreat to the simpler thing that no one could ever reasonably challenge what you're essentially doing is strawmaning your opponent, that your opponent must be defending some really unreasonable thing, like that John, you know, recorded Jesus' words like an absolute tape recorder, and then you'll get people sitting around laughing and going, what, you mean it wasn't in English, you know, and they'll they'll mock, or, uh, or they'll say, well, you know, a lot of scholars think Jesus spoke Aramaic, so John had to translate it into Greek anyway, but you didn't know that, huh, because you're not a New Testament scholar, and it's like, yeah, you know, I knew that, um, and actually, I also know there's a lot of controversy about how much Jesus spoke, uh, and that's it's a whole interesting question in itself. But uh, I, of course, I'm not saying that he recorded it absolutely verbatim. So the word paraphrase will be stretched, like you know, like elastic, to cover elaboration and to cover things that nobody ever thought was meant by paraphrase. Then, when you're talking to a conservative audience. And the scholar doesn't want to scare the horses, as it were. He'll say, um, "Well, you know, John sometimes used paraphrase," and everybody's sitting out there in the pew going, "Well, yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's no problem." And they don't realize what he, you know, what he really is going to then mean by that or do with that. So, I think it's really important to kind of point that out, disambiguate the terms, and um, and then ask for a defense of the stronger thesis. You're going to make that stronger claim that it's. Um, you know he elaborated what's your defense for that
0: there was one example um uh, of what's called paraphrase that he brought up it was um the uh, the last words of jesus mm. um what what is that because i think that's a really punchy example
1: on the cross the words from the cross yes well so around the same time in the crucifixion jesus says um my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he says it in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lama sabachthani. and, and this is recorded in the Synoptics and the um, people around say he's calling for Elijah, like they misunderstand him because of the, the Aramaic. And then somebody runs and tries to bring him some sour wine. Um, and in John he says, "I am thirsty, I thirst. And somebody runs to bring him sour wine. And I would actually agree that's probably the same time that somebody goes to bring him sour wine. I think that's about the same time. Um, And Dr. Daniel Wallace theorizes that John has changed my God, why have you forsaken me into I thirst? That it's like a metaphor for spiritual thirst, which of course, nobody reading John, not even an ancient man could know because somebody goes to bring him wine so obviously john is portraying it that he literally said i thirst because the people around hear him say it and somebody goes to bring him something to drink and um but it's supposed to be this you know deep religious metaphor and then that will get called uh paraphrase or not uh dynamic equivalence or something like that and that's like not paraphrase at all
0: yeah i mean when when i hear some of this stuff um it kind of perplexes me because many of these things aren't trying to resolve a problem. They're just, why Why even invent an idea like this? Where's it coming from? Um, and the one, there was one uh, other uh, objection or myth that I wanted to talk about, and then we can move to the constructive um, case. And you call it the myth of the uh, sock puppet Jesus. And I think this is uh, one of the most important ones because the apparent difference between John and the synoptics and Jesus's teaching style is one of those things which at least seems intuitively persuasive if you're engaging with it for the first time. So tell us about this.
1: Right. So um, it's interesting that a lot of things get included under that notion of Jesus sounding too much like John and too different from the synoptic Jesus. Um, And each of them can be answered. None of them is a, a, a serious, uh, good argument that Jesus is John's mouthpiece, but they, some of them are even in a sense more obvious than others. So for example, what gets lumped in there is that there are no story parables in John. So like, uh, you know, a certain man had two sons or that kind of thing, and they just aren't in John. And, and it's like, that will get lumped in with uh, Jesus' style in John. And I have to point out that not telling parables is not a style. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's not a a description of a style, you know, and so that's just really odd. But then another thing that will get lumped in there and is more, you know, legitimately called style is certain very, I would call them trivial verbal things. So, for example, John is very fond of the Greek connective chi, meaning and. And you'll find it in the prologue, you'll find it in the narrative. It's like his favorite connective. He uses it over and over again. He even uses it for a contrast. So for example, he, he says, uh, he came into his own and his own received him not. That's in the prologue. And we might say he came into his own, but his own received him not. If Luke were writing that passage, he would use probably uh, death uh, or even Allah. He would use a different, connective, different conjunction. And then in Jesus' discourses, we get that same really common use of the Greek connective chi. So he says, uh, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness, you know, and it means but. So it's like a contrastive use called the contrastive chi. So that's included in this notion of Johannine style, uh, which Jesus also uses. And people don't always pause to consider that that's like really trivial. I mean, even, <coughs> even moderate paraphrase could account for that. You know, if Jesus said, suppose Jesus was speaking in Greek, which once again, he might not have been. Uh, he might just have been translating from Aramaic and it's just he's using his own style and translating from Aramaic. But even if Jesus was speaking in Greek and he said, "da," and John remembers it or puts it down as "kai." Like so, what you know? That's extremely trivial. That does not support the idea of Johannine elaboration. So that gets lumped in there in style as an argument. Um, And then the other thing that gets lumped in that I think is probably the strongest point, but still not. I think, a good argument is repetition and length. So I I alluded to this before that idea, nobody could remember this, you know. Um, And Jesus and John in, in those discourses, be they I am discourses or not, tends to repeat himself. He repeats himself a lot within a single discourse. He's a lot more pithy as portrayed in the synoptics. So if you take a comparable length passage of the Sermon on the Plain and you put it up against John 15, you know, in the first maybe 15, 17 verses, um, you find him repeating himself way more in, in John 15. And it's like, I call it a looping style. So it'll be like bear fruit leads to keep my commandments leads to um, love one another or whatever, you know, and then they kind of, kind of loops and then comes back again to bear fruit. Um, and so that is unusual but one of the interesting things is that isn't it more likely that if someone were paraphrasing you would cut out repetitions rather than putting in repetitions you know if you're trying to make it something that people can remember and i'm not saying the synoptics are not historical i'm saying they're paraphrases in that moderate legitimate sense of what jesus said in the sense of just like i'm not going to mention Every time he repeated it or all the connecting things that he made between them, whereas John, I think, is probably trying to give us something more like the way a real discourse would go. And in a sense, it's even more realistic than that kind of chappy style. Um, But then we get into, well, nobody could remember it. You know, nobody could remember something that long. Now, verbatim, that would be pretty remarkable. Um, if we're demanding an absolutely verbatim memory or a verbatim memory of it in Aramaic, which is then translated into, you know, extremely literally into Greek or something like that. But um, it doesn't have to be absolutely verbatim, but it can be quite good. And if you've ever known anyone with even a pretty impressive memory who can you know, recount for you a conversation that he had. Now, I I used to have this when I was younger, I've kind of lasted as I've gotten older, but this kind of semi-audiographic memory, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was pretty good. And, you know, people will joke with my husband, they'll say, I bet you never won an argument, you know, because like, I would always know, what you said was this, you you know, he didn't say that or whatever, but um, it, if we even just attribute that much to John, and we also remember that he would have been repeating this from a fairly early time onward. So it's not like he sat around for 70 years and never, never re- repeated what Jesus said. And then suddenly, boom, in Ephesus in the year 95, he starts coming out with all this stuff. You know, no, he he's remembering it himself by recounting it, you know, all the way along. So I don't think that's really so, uh, so implausible. And I like to say if a, if a student is telling you how a teacher uh, s- spoke on the first day of class and said, look in the syllabus before you ask me a question, and maybe the teacher repeated it five times and the student in, in telling it to the other, to his parents or whatever, and kind of play it, hamming it up, you know, he, he remembers it six times that he said, look in the syllabus, right? That doesn't mean he's elaborating. He's not like trying to change it. He's trying to get it accurate. He's actually getting it quite accurate, but um, that's not actually the kind of elaboration that is being attributed to John.
0: That that gives a a, a good segue, I think, to the more constructive discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first question that um, I want to ask along those lines because I found it so powerful in in your book um, is, what are some signs that we really are encountering the same kind of person in the Gospel of John that we meet in the synoptics?
1: It's, it's an amazing argument, and once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Um, so sometimes we have very similar sayings but recounted in different contexts. So, for example, we, we have, you know, asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find, knocking the door shall be opened unto you in Matthew. And then in John, in the farewell discourse, we have, until now, you've asked for nothing in my name, asking you shall receive, you know, so it's like almost the exact same saying, but it's in a different context. Now, if a scholar says, yeah, yeah, John moved that, it's like, man, heads I win, tails you lose, right, If, if John has stuff that's different from what's in the synoptics, we say, oh man, Jesus sounds way too different in John. But if John has something that's similar to what's in the Synoptics, we say, yeah, John moved that and he adapted it, you know? And, and to me, that's making that position unfalsifiable. And what we should instead be saying, oh, oh you know, it's like Jesus said that asking you shall receive thing and, and that it was typical of him. And John is just reporting a different occasion on which he said it. So that's one kind of sign. Uh, another though, that I, I love perhaps even more is the similarity of of mind but in completely different sayings so this is this is one of my favorites where uh in luke this woman has um been bent over for 18 years and jesus heals her on the sabbath then uh the, the synagogue leader complains and objects to healing on the sabbath and jesus says on the Sabbath, you will you will unloose your animal to lead him to drink, and why should I not have un, unloosed? Why should I have loosed? You know, untied this woman, uh, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years. So it's he likes to play on that, you know, to untie an animal and untie a person, and it's in the context of a Sabbath healing. So then you go to John and uh, Jesus heals the man who's paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And they complain because he healed on the Sabbath and he told the man to carry his pallet, which is work on the Sabbath. Um, And that's in John 5. And then in John 7, Jesus alludes to this. And he says, I did uh, one work and you all marveled. You will circumcise a man on the eighth day uh, that the law be not broken. But I made a whole man well on the eighth day. OK, and, and you're angry with me. Um, so to circumcise on the eighth day with the child, if he's eight days old and it's the Sabbath, there was actually a rabbinic ruling and we have we have independent support for this. There was actually a rabbinic ruling that didn't count as work. You're allowed to do that. So that's external confirmation, by the way, of John. Um, and so they, they were like, yeah, you know, you're allowed to do that. And, and Jesus isn't necessarily saying that's wrong, but then he's saying. Okay, so why couldn't I, if you'll, if you'll cut to circumcise, why can't I put back together to make a man whole on the Sabbath? Okay, so it's very similar. It's the similar mind um, in a different, a different story, you know, um, or you'll find Jesus being very sarcastic and facetious. Um, very, this is a very difficult person in certain ways. So in Luke, uh, he says, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And it's almost almost bitter, you know, um, I'm gonna, I am got to go to Jerusalem to die because all prophets die in Jerusalem, didn't you know? You know? And then in, in John 10, when they're going to stone him, he says, I have done many good works. For which of my good works are you stoning me? Now, that's, that's the same guy. I mean that's the same mind. He's got that sharpness, that edge to him, um, and that that love of um, sort of putting his opponents on the on the defensive. So I mean I have lots more examples of this. Some of them very tender as well as sharp in the book.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and and there's the. Um what they call the Johannine Thunderbolt, you know. uh, Oh, of
1: course, there's that. And everybody acknowledges that, but they treat it like it's isolated. And so I bring it up in the book, but then I try to show that it's actually not an isolated instance.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things is, if you're saying that this is Johannine style and it's distinctive Mm -hmm. to John, then even a couple examples, and it's not shows that Jesus did, or at least there are... uh, traditions outside of John that Jesus did teach this way. So it's not like you need a vast repertoire of these sayings, even one is going to to, to falsify the idea. Um, So let's talk about uh, the authorship of John's gospel. Um, uh, First, uh, to what degree does affirmation of apostolic or eyewitness authorship um, control our conclusions about John's historicity?
1: one thing it means is that we should not use language like, um, John may have had a tradition that Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem after his, uh, after his resurrection. And it's interesting to me that you'll often, you'll, well, maybe not often, but sometimes have a scholar who, who supposedly affirms authorship by an original apostle, but will still use that language. And I think it's because that language is so ingrained in the, in the scholarly community that people use it unthinkingly. So um, if John was a disciple, then the question of whether Jesus appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem after, the, uh, after his resurrection would not have been something he would have received by tradition. It would have been something he would know. Or or not know you know by being a disciple. So that's one very important thing. On the other hand, it doesn't stop scholars. It it should it should but it doesn't from implying that he invented things. I mean the if we take it back to an original disciple and then we have him saying things like he who saw it bore record and his record is true, like in John nineteen. Um, we should we should be saying, you know, this guy really, truth was really important. I mean, this is similar to what we were saying about ancient people and truth being important. Um, and he was an original eyewitness. So that should give us reason to think he's just telling it the way he knows it and remembers it. Uh, and if he wasn't present, you know, he could have talked to somebody who was present, just like one one remove at most, um, but it doesn't automatically. So um, if, if someone says, yes, I think John the son of Zebedee wrote it then you still sometimes need to look at what else he says elsewhere to find out if he thinks that means it was, you know, historically literal, historically truthful, um, because it's not a necessary connection. But it certainly is important. I mean, if, if we thought that someone many years later wrote it, who had to get things that several removes, obviously, that would make it harder to get it right. So if he really was an original disciple, he had at least the opportunity to get it right.
0: So I think it was John the son of Zebedee. You'll hear um, biblical scholars say, just as a matter of fact, the gospels, including John, are anonymous, this tradition, Bart Ehrman, he says, and this really, I, I was very surprised by this, he describes a narrative of Christian history and how the Gospels came to be attributed to the authors they're attributed to, and you know it's introductory, but he presents it as if this is something which we have read out of the um, uh, uh, early Christian writers as information. Um, yes, yes. What, why, why is Ehrman wrong? Why, why think this was um, at least a John, an eyewitness of Jesus?
1: Right. So. The argument from silence is Bart Ehrman's favorite argument. I mean, I really, I really think it's his favorite. Um, so he'll take the fact that we do not possess naming documents that name the author of you know John or or the other Gospels either prior to the time of Irenaeus. So you know, late second century, and then he'll narrate that as you said as. The gospels got their names in the time of Irenaeus and you know like the Muratorian canon you know around that time and and so forth and and he'll say they were anonymous before in this very strong way now that this is another one of those term ambiguities uh the ways that very technical and kind of useless Meaning of anonymous just is that it's not named in the document. So unlike a Pauline epistle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he names himself in the document. The Gospels, this is trivial, do not name themselves in the documents. So Bart Ehrman will then uh, equivocate between that sense of anonymous and the sense of anonymous, like nobody knew who wrote it. And you know, I mean, if you just have a, a novel or any other document, and it only has the author's name on the title page and the front cover, and nowhere in the document does it say, you know, I so-and-so wrote this book, then in that sense, a bunch of modern books are anonymous, like who cares, you know, but everybody knows who wrote it's right there on the front cover, you know, so um, in that sense, there's no reason to think that the Gospels were ever anonymous, uh, in the sense of not knowing who wrote them. Uh, Someone that Ehrman overlooks a lot is Justin Martyr, And uh, this is convenient for him, and he can do it and get away with it because Justin Martyr does not name the authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But he says that these were written by the apostles and their companions, and he calls them the memoirs of the apostles and their companions repeatedly, he says that. Um, So, you know, you've got your, and it fits kind of neatly, apostles, John and Matthew, companions. Uh, Mark and Luke, right? So you've got that um, attribution showing that they were keeping track of who wrote these and that's way earlier, you know, than Irenaeus, you know, that's like 80 years, you know, 80 years earlier. So um, every external attestation we have that does name the author from starting, I think probably the earliest was actually a a Gnostic Ptolemy, the Gnostic, I believe, is cited by Ignatius, I want to say, possibly Irenaeus, as um, attributing it to John, the disciple of Jesus. And, um, you know, so the Gnostics kind of liked John. They kind of tried to glom onto onto it. Um, And so everyone we have says that it was by John, who is an apostle and a disciple of Jesus, from the mid Second century onward that we possess, and just because we don't possess something doesn't mean it didn't exist. We a lot of documents from that time have been lost. Um, for example, Papius, we don't know what Papius said specifically about the authorship. Uh, it's it's been lost, but you know, very likely that he said something. You know, so um, but everything we possess is unanimous. I mean, it's it's literally unanimous. We do not possess a single document that attributes it to anyone other than a guy named John, who was Jesus' personal disciple. For any other type of like classical work, this would be a knockdown and it's much better than we have for many classical works.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, building on what you mentioned about modern books, I mean, it struck me one day that almost every one of my blog posts is intern- internally anonymous. I mean,
1: right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and Whoa, man. <laughs>
0: do you think that, um, you know, let's say John writes the gospel and he has three autographs for publication. Do you think that at the top of that, there was a title the gospel according to John? Or do you think that was added by his first readers out of curiosity?
1: Well, I don't know about, you know, his writing it down. He may have had an amanuensis or something, but um, and, and they would tend to write titles on like the outside, especially if it's a codex, which is what we now call a book, which Christians made very, Uh, Common, But even a scroll would have a label. So if you're going to keep something in a book chest, all right, and it's all looking kind of alike, you want something that you can see so you're not literally having to pull out all your books, you know, to figure out find the one that you want. So it would be pretty common. uh, But, you know, would that be his first readers, it could have been on every copy. And Martin Hengel argues for this that it would be plausible that any copy that was distributed would have a label on it, you know, because it's going to go out there, and it's you're going to want to know what it is, and particularly, especially though, if somebody's putting it into a collection, even a small library, like a small private. Uh, collection, that he would put a a label on it, Uh, whether John himself put it on there or not. I mean, the interesting thing is that when it says this is the disciple that wrote these things, you know, John uh, 21, 24, referring to the beloved disciple. And that's that one or two verses there may have been written by another hand. Richard Balcoms actually argued that it's him referring to himself in the third person. Uh, either way, though, this is like a super early attestation. And I think there's supposed to be some notion that people know who the beloved disciple is, you know, like, that, but it's definitely saying, written by the BD, you know, the beloved disciple. And in that sense, that's internal. That's, inter- you know, you could think of that as internal to the book.
0: Yes. Speaking of, of Richard Baucom, um, I think, uh, all you who are interested in the subject should check out the edited volume Gospels for All Christians, especially on the structures or patterns of publication in antiquity. It has an essay called The Holy Internet, which for me was was really striking, um, because as you mentioned, um, so many studies of the Gospels presume this kind of world of the early church, where there's a localized transmission of oral traditions. And yes, he just points out, where where's the evidence for this kind of community? That's not what we see in Paul or elsewhere. Like um, a
1: chain, right?
0: Yeah. Um, or, you know, where's the evidence that they were writing only for this local community? I mean, it's it's something which seems to be uh, baseless. Um, so speaking of Balcom, um, I wanted to ask you on, the idea that this is uh, not John the son of Zebedee; it is John the elder, John the presbyter, who is centered in Jerusalem. Uh, what do you what do you think of that? And uh, and why don't you uh, take that to be the fact?
1: So I put um, an an appendix on that, and I did that for the reason that I sort of wanted to I wanted to woo the Balcomites in the main body of my my work because you know Balcom's John, his other John, is a personal disciple of Jesus. You know, he is the beloved disciple in his view, but he's just another disciple named John. Um, and so, this is you know compatible with as conservative a view as you would could possibly want on the historicity. Uh, more so, even perhaps than 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 Balcom. I mean, you know, Balcom maybe wouldn't want to be identified as a conservative, but um, there are people who are genuinely conservative. Um, who, who take that other John view. So I didn't want to alienate them in the main body. And yet I, I thought it was important enough to address. And so I had an appendix. Um, and one of the ways that it's, it's uh, important is because of this notion that, that that other John did not travel and did not personally witness the Galilean ministry. Um, now, you know he could still have a really good account of it the way Luke has a really good account, even though he didn't travel with Jesus at all, right? But Luke is very, very scrupulous and has really good, you know, human sources that just, I think are just one, you know, he's only one removed from the events. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it gives John a much better opportunity uh, if he's like right there. And I, I think that the arguments uh, are very poor. Again, mostly they're arguments from silence, like why doesn't he talk about um, this, that, or the other in, in Galilee, like, why doesn't he have more stories about Galilee? Well, if you look at the, at the Gospel of John, look at how few stories he has. It's very typical of John. He'll take a story and he'll take a lot of time over it. And then that's filling up a lot of his scroll, right? And then, and then he moves to another story and he takes a lot of time over that. Um, he does have the feeding of the 5,000, which occurs in Galilee. And he has various little details like... Um, The Passover was near at hand. He's the only gospel to mention that. Or Jesus spoke to Philip. And he's the only gospel to mention that. Um, And to me, it looked like he was present. Um, So then, you know, what what are we doing? We're going, well, he needs to have more Galilee stories, okay? You know, Uh, or Cana. the marriage of Cana occurs in Galilee. You know, so it's like, how many Galilee stories do you want? You know, Um, so I I think that these are very very weak arguments and um, you can see more about that in the appendix. There are also I think positive arguments like what I just mentioned about the feeding of the 5,000. Or one of my favorites is an unexplained allusion that occurs in John 2, 12. Uh, the marriage of the Kina has just been reported. And then he's gonna report um, the, the cleansing of the temple in uh, Jerusalem at Jesus' first Passover. And John 2, 12 is like in between those. And it doesn't really belong to either story. And he goes, uh, and he, after that, he and his disciples and his mother and his brothers went down to Capernaum and they stayed there for a few days. Stop. And it's like random. It's completely random. But it it fits from them being in Cana, because then you go downhill to get to Capernaum and you really do because Capernaum is like below sea level and Cain is up in the hills. Um, it, suppose he was getting that from Nathaniel. That's actually Baucom's theory that Nathaniel was at the marriage of Canaan and reported it to this other John who was staying in Jerusalem. Um, why would you include that? Like if you're getting it from Nathaniel, why include this random pointless thing about Jesus going to, uh, sorry, going to Capernaum with his mother and brothers. But if you were there, and we find real people do this all the time, though, if they're just kind of telling a story, they'll just throw something in, like, oh, yeah, I had to go to the doctor that day, you know, or whatever. And it's got nothing to do with the rest of their story. And they just move on. That sounds like, that sounds like memoir, that sounds like a person who's really there. There's a lot of stuff like that. I'll, I'll just give you one other one, which is um, the beloved disciple is clearly there in chapter 21 when they're uh, in the Sea of Galilee. And the next morning, Jesus appears on the shore. Um, so the day before, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And six other people say, we'll go with you. And, uh, and, and they know it's at night. And that's how fishermen fish in that part of the world, because, you know, it's easier to you have a light. It's easier to see the fish. So they fish at night um, and they go they go fish all night. They don't catch anything in this little boat. I mean, really, un, only a fisherman could love that, you know, and and a particular kind of fisherman who's used to doing that, you know, and maybe he needed the fish, but they didn't have to go with him so suppose the beloved disciple is this jerusalem guy he comes from a high-born sadducee family he hangs out in jerusalem most of the time maybe he hasn't even been to galilee all that often he's only gone to galilee this time because he's hoping to meet jesus because jesus said his disciples go to galilee you know and i'll see you there and peter goes. I'm going fishing all night in this little boat. It's about yay big, you know, and he goes, hey, I'll go with you. I mean, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't really make sense. Whereas if he's John, the son of Zebedee, he's actually been Peter's fishing partner. And um, and it actually says the sons of Zebedee were there. Um, so it, it it just all fits together extremely well. And I, I have other examples in the book as well of positive evidence of his being the son of Zebedee.
0: I mean, um. I was, I was actually surprised when I read, because I think Balkan's one of my favorite New Testament scholars, but when I read the chapter in Jesus and the Eyewitnesses on the authorship of John, I was surprised by how weak the external evidence he adduced was, because um, he, on one hand, he says, well, this writer identifies him as a disciple and doesn't call him an apostle. But then, in the same breath, there's another writer who does call an apostle, but he says, "Well, the apostle was a broader, uh, right? Domestic. So it's, it's super
1: ad hoc. It's super yeah. ad hoc. He's basically constantly having to explain away the external evidence, and and I I bring that out. I'm kind of ruthless. I mean, I'm kind of like, this is just terrible, you know. And and uh, the, the funny thing was, Balcom was offered a review copy of the book and uh, decided not to not to take it. know decided not to read it and i'm thinking to myself well that can't be because he read it and he got mad because he didn't he didn't even read it but maybe he would have been mad if he had read it i don't know uh
0: so uh as we kind of wrap up um i wanted to just ask you um and this this is kind of random but it's so it's right at the beginning of the gospel and it's such a popular um idea um what's your take on the temple cleansing at the beginning, of John? Because I've heard a lot of uh, conservative scholars who say this is just ludicrous, say that there's two temple cleansings, it's ad hoc. Um, you take the view that there are two. I tend to agree with that. Uh, how come?
1: Well, because that's... Uh the most natural interpretation of the gospels. Let's just start with that on the face of it. John is reporting one at the beginning and the synoptics are reporting one at the end. The other thing is, um, and I have an entire video series and I'd love it if you would uh, link this in the show notes, uh, a temple cleansing series that I did. Um, the idea that they are uncannily similar is wrong. Um, there's an article by an author um, named Chapel. I believe is how you pronounce it, um, Alan Chappell, where he's he's got like a chart and he shows all the little differences. Now, if we knew that they were the same one in some other independent way, like if they appeared to be reported at the same time, then it's not like these would have to mean that they were different. But since they are reported at different times, what these differences show is that they're not reported in uncannily similar language. And Craig Blomberg has made the same point that aside from the words that you need to describe him chasing them out, you know, overturn tables, you know, mentions doves or whatever. Um, it's there's not a lot of other like oh my goodness they're having exactly the same dialogue here or they're, You know, in fact, there's somewhat different dialogue, and so. Um, It's more like if you were to describe two of the George Floyd protests from last summer, um, you know, okay, it started earlier in the day, they're carrying signs, etc. But um, then after nightfall, there began to be clashes and it became more violent, blah, blah, blah. You could describe them in similar terms, but there were a whole bunch of them, you know, or um, people standing out in front of the Supreme Court right now concerning Roe versus Wade. You've got protesters and you've got counter-protesters and uh, holding signs that say this and so forth. And it's like, huh, it's uncanny. There must've been only one. And and, and it's nonsense, there's many of them. So um, I think we need to break free of this idea that it's ad hoc, it's really not ad hoc at all. Um, And so, I think we can just take them on the face of it. The other thing that I want to talk a little bit about is the burden of proof on the theological uh, hypotheses that are put on top of John supposedly moving it. I think there's a huge failure of the scholars to recognize the burden of proof that they're taking on. So I'll just use Craig Keener as an example here because he thinks John moved it. Um, he says that John's purpose in moving it was to, uh, make Jesus' entire ministry be symbolically part of Passion Week. Like, not that it actually took place in Passion Week, but that it's like a symbolic three-year-long passion. OK. This is so obscure. I mean, there's there's nothing in the text to illustrate, to indicate that. And I think we need to just pause sometimes a moment and say, OK. You're saying that you're reading that in John's mind, and then you're saying that his readers were reading that in John's mind when there could have been so many other things. The readers could have had the same debates we're having. The readers could have said, well, did, did it happen just once or did it happen twice or what's going on or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's no reason to think that the readers would go, aha, He moved it and see what that means is that Jesus whole ministry was one long passion week. It's like, there's no reason to think that they would have realized that at all. And the, the literary critical gospels scholars are way too quick to do that. And there are not enough people calling on, on that and saying it's completely arbitrary. I could make up a completely different reason if I just got a little creative for John to move it that would have just as much and just as little evidence for it as the one you just made up. And this is, as D.A. Carson likes to use the phrase, without objective control. That's one of the phrase he uses, and I like that phrase. Um, so why did John move it? If John moved it, why did John move it? We have no reason that makes sense or that we have any evidence for for him to have moved it. Uh, in fact, I would almost be more friendly to, though I would think they were wrong, the scholars, there were some older scholars who said, oh, I think he just got confused, you know, later and like misremembered it being early. And I mean, you know, it, it, that's not right either, okay. But at least that was sort of a more, a human and natural kind of thing that in in some sense could happen rather than this kind of elaborate, bizarre literary critical uh, theory. But I don't see any reason to think that either. Uh, Just take it on its face value. There is in fact no contradiction between Jesus cleansed the temple early in his ministry and Jesus cleansed the temple late in his ministry. And people can see more of my responses to more of the objections uh, in the, the series.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I just want to say, I mean, viewers, um, uh, if you're a regular viewer, you know, I'm pretty uh, uh, enthusiastic about typological symbolic interpretation, but with historicity, but I really appreciate, I'm more enthusiastic than Lydia is for sure, but I really appreciate um, uh, her own commentary on this subject, uh, especially as it pertains to the way in which we develop explanatory models for texts because it's helped me enunciate precisely um, when and why I I might take something to have meaning like that. And I think that's just a great example of the dangers of arbitrary interpretation and the need to be clear in our own minds. Um, So uh, is there anything else you wanted to get to before we say some closing words that we haven't gotten to so far?
1: I just want to say more broadly, not necessarily any one thing I want to get to, but I want to say more broadly that we've only been able to touch the evidence today. You know, um, I mean, there there are other objections that I answer. There are other evidences for positive evidences that I give. And so... Please get the book, not because I want to sell books, but because um, there's so much more to be said. And if, if you are so, there's there's a couple different kinds of readers. There's a reader who has been kind of uh, leaning towards some of these views that that John changed the facts so or John isn't totally historical. Um, maybe maybe he's a Christian. Uh, Maybe he's a non-Christian, but if he's a Christian, maybe he's been like, oh, well, you know, these evangelical scholars think this is true. And if they think it's true, the arguments must be good. And That certainly doesn't follow. Right. Um, So that reader should get the book. But then if you're also a reader who's like, I've never really questioned the historicity of John. So why should I get this book? Well, because there's there's probably more positive evidence there that you've not heard of or thought of before. So like some of the examples we gave today, like the uh, personality of Jesus or those unexplained allusions, like he went down to Capernaum and stayed a few days. I've got more examples like that. Um, And when you start thinking of how that resembles the way that ordinary people talk, um, that you maybe have, never thought of before and it will take you back to the text and give you uh, lots of fodder if you're a pastor for sermons please cite me if you use me in a sermon but um it's just got it's got a lot of material that i i mean to be useful to the body of christ and so i hope people will avail themselves of that
0: It's a very well-written book as well very readable which is a virtue sometimes you don't see in this in this field so i would recommend it on those terms as well Um, all right. So to wrap up, um, you've been, you know, criticized sometimes. Oh, Lydia, she's not a New Testament scholar. She doesn't know the field or whatever. Um, what can a layperson? What what lessons can a layperson derive from just the way that this whole argument is played out and the kinds of arguments that are used? How can we be confident that we have any right to say anything at all or have any opinion?
1: Right. Right. Well, it's This is kind of related to um, the theme of my. YouTube channel. I call it making common sense rigorous. So um, the idea is that I'm taking those instincts that you might have to say, well, that sure looks like he meant it to be historical. And then I'm I'm saying you are right, and here's why you were right. You know, and and this is why, you know, the arguments against that are weak. And I think one thing that I think laymen need to be bolstered in. Is that it's really okay to say the scholar has a weak argument? Scholars need to be able to say that to each other. Laymen need to be able, you know, after you look into it, to say, "Yeah, that's that's like you said about Balcom's argument uh, and the external evidence and and John the son of Zebedee, right? You read it and you're like, that that's not very good, you know." Um, I I think we need to have the courage to do that after we examine it, and that's something I'm really trying to teach people to do. Sort of like what I just said a minute ago where I said, no, even if an evangelical scholar accepted, it it might still be a weak argument. You know, that that's a lesson. It's a takeaway here that within the guild, there's a lot of influence, mutual influence going on and it crosses ideological lines. So, you know, liberal scholars can be influencing the conservative scholars. Sometimes the conservative scholars influence the liberal scholars, that doesn't happen as often, but, just because two different people are saying it and one's called a liberal, and one's called a conservative, you shouldn't say, gosh, you know, it must have some really overwhelming evidence. If, you, if you're curious, go look into the evidence and be prepared to say, that's it? That's not, you know, that's not very good. And that's, that's okay, you can do that. And so that's a lesson I really want Layman to take away.
0: Well, Lydia, thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed both of our uh, discussions. Um, I hope in the future we have the opportunity to have you on again. Um, is there any uh, project that you're working on now that you want people to know about?
1: Um. Yeah, well, I'm working on a book that is going to be called Testimonies to the Truth. And I don't know when it's going to come out. It's It's still in the draft stage very much. And I'm still working on the, you know, the different chapters and and polishing them. All of the chapters have been drafted, but some of them are very drafty. So, um, and what that's going to be is a um, popular level treatment of these topics. So it's meant to take hidden in plain view, uh, the mirror of the mask and the um, eye of the beholder, and in a shorter compass, bring that to, the layman in a really lay-friendly way, more similar to Hidden in Plain View. Now, I think all my books are lay-friendly, um, but but more, okay? Um, more than especially the Mirror of the Mask and the Eye of the Beholder. Um, now, of course, that's going to mean I'm going to have to ruthlessly cut out material. Like, you know, obviously, otherwise it would be as big as all of those books put together, which not going to be very lay-friendly. People will be intimidated by the length. Um, but I'm trying to give people a sample of each of these things and write it in a, a very accessible way, and then I hope to have a, um, a study guide. And I haven't even touched that. I might get a co-author to write the study guide with me so that it can be used in um, so that it can be used in Sunday school, Bible studies, college ministries, etc. So I really hope I can finish that, and I would hope that people would you know pray for me about that project.
0: Yeah. So please do pray for Lydia. Make sure to uh, pick up her book, Mirror and Mask, and uh, The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as historical reportage. It's worth every penny. So thanks again, Lydia.
1: Thank you for having me.